Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Hey, we are in the book of John, if you remember, John 6, verses 24 through 35. Remember that we just had the feeding of the 5,000, um, and so now we're kind of looking in what happens after that. So I'm going to let Alan um, continue into this, kind of explain where where the lectionary hits and maybe what, and, and opposed to what John does. So anyway, let's, let's, uh, let's set this up. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, as I mentioned last week in year B, the Revised Common Lectionary takes another detour and spends five weeks on John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 and the Bread of Life discourse. Um, and, you know, basically in John's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 sets up the Bread of Life discourse. Um, where Jesus is going to make some pretty amazing claims. We're going to see some of that today. Um, In this week's section of John 6, also seems to be part of setting the stage in that it raises a couple of questions. What must we do to perform the works of God in verse 28? And what sign are you going to give us so that we may see it and believe you in verse 30? Now, as is (laughs) the, the case with the lectionary, Uh, They leave out part of the story. They leave out verses 22 and 23. And I I think probably the editors who compiled it saw these verses as Mm -hmm. redundant. But again, I think that these verses also set the stage for another main question that the crowd will ask. Rabbi, when did you come here? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, you know... (laughs) We've seen before that John's narrative ha- is repetitive in, in, in right. various ways, right. but I think it's important for John to let John be John. So, you know. So, uh, no, real quick here, um, you know, what what is going on in 22 and 23? I don't have it quite in front of me, if you all do. Yeah, well, the, basically what's going on here, again, is that John is, is setting up the, the stage for the, for the Bread of Life discourse, discourse, and he points out details here that, um, you know, that, that we've seen already, but he really wants to reiterate them, I think. There had only been one boat. You know, the crowd notices that there had only been one boat, and Jesus didn't get into the boat with the disciples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then John also tells us that some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, here's this reference to the place where the Lord, where they had eaten the bread. In other words, the place where the feeding miracle had occurred. And so I think John wants us, well, he wants to keep this feeding miracle very much in mind and and point out that the crowd was searching for Jesus to find answers to their questions that were raised by the feeding miracle. Well, yes. And I think it's interesting that this is, this is that de- detail that John includes here. You know, mm-hmm. there's, 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 there's this ship. Jesus is not on it, that mm-hmm. they are aware of this. Um, they wonder maybe not just when you got here, but, but how? Yeah, and that's the way. I mean, that's the question that they ask. But I've, you know, Rabbi, when did you come here? Mm-hmm. But I've always thought that the real question behind that was, um, um, how did you get here mm-hmm. um, in light of these verses? Do you think, um, do you think there's any idea that he may have you know, walked on the water across or appeared across or, I, I mean, or is this just, just for us to have that sense of wonder? 
I think they're just they're just uh, I think they're just wondering. I mean, I, I don't think there's any there doesn't seem to be any awareness on the part of the crowd that Jesus has walked on the water. Um, obviously, the disciples would be, would have been aware of that, mm-hmm. uh, and the reader of the gospel would be aware of that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the crowd would have necessarily okay. had that had that awareness. Okay. So um, let us move on. Um, so obviously, this is a little bit of a problem with the lectionary. So where does the lectionary begin? Then? So the lectionary begins then in verse twenty four with the observation that when those who were searching for Jesus didn't find him at the unnamed place where the feeding miracle mm-hmm. had occurred, they took to their own boats to search for him in Capernaum. Now, it's interesting to note that the place names in the gospel traditions surrounding these events can get a bit confusing. Mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, and John all seem to imply that the feeding miracle took place somewhere on the eastern side of the sea where there weren't many towns. Matthew and Mark indicate that when he and the disciples crossed to the other side, they went to Gennesaret, which was to the southwest of Capernaum along the western side of the sea. In Luke's gospel, the whole episode of the feeding miracle occurs in the vicinity of Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the sea. Um, And only in John's gospel does Capernaum feature so prominently as it does here. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when in verse 25, all John says is that the crowd found him on the other side of the sea with no indication of where they were. So that's really vague. When Mm -hmm. when you think of John as having these other, like these boats Mm -hmm. from Tiberias, Mm -hmm. which is which is interesting, um, and then this kind of vagueness as to other side of the sea. I, I, I want to think there's intentionality there. Maybe there's not. I don't know. I don't know. I just think it's interesting to note that in the gospel tradition as a whole, there's a bit of confusion as to where Jesus actually went, <laughs> wound up after mm-hmm. after the feeding miracle. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I think as it came into maybe oral tradition, everyone wanted to claim that spot. Mm-hmm. They, you know, kind of like today, you go to Jerusalem and what, was this, the, is this where the tomb was? Is this the street he carried the cross down? Right. Well, and frankly, I mean, this is where some some scholars, some New Testament scholars um, would be critical of the gospel writers saying that they, you know, they didn't really have a good understanding of, of the geography of Judea. So well, that could be. I mean, fair enough, right? Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Um, um, these folks may not have actually traveled all these places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know that. I, I, I really kind of. I, I have never felt compelled to to embrace that view entirely. I just think yeah. you know you've got some situations like this where because the the gospel tradition was transmitted orally right. we just don't know we i mean was it was did they wind up in gennesaret did they wind up in capernaum was jesus in bethsaida the whole time you know we don't know well but we do have still this general this general story that is the same right so yeah. i think that's what we rely except on. in luke's gospel in luke's gospel the whole thing occurs right. in bethsaida yeah well okay okay <laughs> so, right so in that, but yeah. otherwise yes in the other three gospels you know you have this idea that the feeding miracles take place on the eastern side of the sea and then they crosses over somewhere to the western mm-hmm, side of the sea mm-hmm. okay yeah. all right so let's move on um because we we need to see what what uh, so what comes next what's the What's the basis of the narrative now? Yeah, well, 
Um, you know, they, again, they, they asked the question, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he just kind of bypasses that question altogether. Uh, and to some extent, really, I think he's anticipating a whole different line of questioning here. You're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, in my opinion, and I, not just my opinion, I've seen this in some commentators too. This is a little strange because in John's account of the feeding miracle, the fact that the crowd saw the sign that he had done basically led them to say that he was the prophet who was to come into the world. And that led to Jesus' decision to cross to the other side mm -hmm, of the lake. Mm -hmm. But, and then going back further, the whole episode of the feeding miracle took place due to the crowd, fact that the crowds were following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. So, you know, why is Jesus saying, you, 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 you know, you, you're looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves? Right, right. Um, part of what's going on here, too, is I think we should note there's a bit of a change, and there's some debate as to the composition of the crowd. Because earlier on, they say that he's the prophet who was to come right, to the right, world. Right, right, right. Here they just say, Rabbi which is a very different, mm -hmm. it's just a very, almost a very normal, everyday pedestrian kind of way of addressing him, teacher, you know. Mm -hmm. And so some have, have seen some sort of disjunction here between what was going on before and what's going on here. In, in my mind, it's the, what did we just see? The discussion of all mm -hmm. these people going on. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's go find out. Let's yeah. go ask more questions. Let's, yeah. or just this compelling He's here and everything's well, but now he's gone and we're bickering. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of things right. that could be interpreted into right. that, I suppose. I, I, the way I read it is that, you know, I think we're meant to understand that the crowd's faith, whatever it might have been in Jesus, was inadequate. I agree, yeah. Uh, whether yeah. they came simply for healing miracles or they came simply mm -hmm. because they fed them enough so that they ate their fill of the loaves. And we see this in the Synoptic Gospels with Jesus' vow not to perform any signs. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke. Right, right. And Jesus has really already expressed something like this in John four forty eight. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, mm -hmm. which is a point of criticism on Jesus' part. Right. So I would say that the point of this dialogue here is the superficiality of the crowd's response. Yeah, they track him down, but but basically, you know, their 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 response to him is is you're right. They're looking for they're looking for healing. They're looking for food. Right. And 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 this this idea i think anticipates the bread of life discourse as well and mm -hmm. jesus really in my opinion kind of summarizes just about everything he's going to say in the bread right, of life discourse right. in verse 27 do not work for the food that perishes but the food that endures for eternal life mm -hmm. in john six twenty-seven. now i think it would have been commonly assumed on their part that food perishes right because right. that's what food that, does mm -hmm. even in our day um and and here i think jesus combination of food with eternal life would have been a bit confusing to them even though earlier on in john chapter 4 when jesus is dialoguing with the woman at the well he does say that the water that he will give will 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 be like a spring of water within welling up to eternal life in John 4, 14. Mm -hmm. So he's already compared water to eternal life. Right. Here he compares food right. to eternal right. life. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think part of what he's doing is that in response to the crowd, you know, seeking him is to challenge their assumptions by insisting that he was much more than a healer or a source of food. Right. Uh, and he will press this point home later in the chapter. For now, Jesus simply says that the Son of Man... He calls himself the son of man again here, is the one who will give them the food that abides. We've seen that mm -hmm. word before, right? Mm -hmm. The food that abides for eternal life. 
Now, again, I think it's significant at this point in John's narrative that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. We've seen it already mm-hmm. a couple of times in John's Gospel, and I think it's important to see that you know this is an important connection. Just to be reminded, this is an important connection with the go- yes. synoptic Gospel tradition. Yes, and clearly, I mean, to some extent, John was aware of those other Gospels. I assume. Do we do we do we think that was that part? Or it's hard to say for sure. Yeah. It's hard to say for true. sure. I would say I would say the synoptic gospels were aware of each other, but because of the uniqueness of John's gospel, I think it's hard to say for sure if yeah, he was aware he of the synoptic. Yeah, that tradition. may be true. I think I would say that I would say that the use of Son of Man in John's gospel um, attests the um, stability of the oral tradition yeah. in reflecting that Jesus identified himself okay. as the Son of Man. That actually, it's really helpful, and I think. When I think of this idea of son of man, I think it's confusing for folks sometimes. It is. So that this is a just a kind of a core um, terminology in the, in the church, I think it's really important for us to to embrace and and that it, it came through. In, in the synoptic gospels, Jesus identifies himself, mm-hmm. you know, numerous times as the son of man mm-hmm. and overwhelmingly as right. the son of man. And, you know, that's just who he is. And, right. and a lot of people have wanted to say, like well, in fact, some some modern translations will use the human one, right? Because that's really what "son of man" means in Hebrew. Bar enosh. It means it's a, a reference to a human being as a mortal, in a, as opposed right. to God, right? But as we've said before, you know, in 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 the, in the synoptic gospel tradition, Jesus as the Son of Man does the things that only God can do, right? And so it, it Jesus is using that that word with a bit of a twist you know he's not using i don't think he's using it to refer to his mortality i think he's using it to refer to the fact that he has this exousia this authority from god yeah to do what only god can do yeah i think i think that's also really really helpful and thoughtful i mean i'm just thinking when i work with young people terminology can get really confusing and it's well this is the son of god why does he call himself the son of man and um, well, and there's this sort of, sort of assumption in the church. Jesus is the Son of Man. That means he's fully human. Jesus is the Son of God. That means he's fully divine. Well, not entirely. Actually, you might they might be switched <laughs> because Son of God was was more of a title that was used in right. Judaism yeah. for a human for figure. for a human figure. It, yeah. yeah. What? So that's even that's it's it's it's, it's got a, a deeper and more robust. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now, obviously, obviously, I think in the New Testament, Son of God does have divine I th- implications. I think so yeah. too. Yeah. I think so too. But but it, there's a pl- almost a play on the words there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think I, so. Yeah. Now, um, uh, Jesus goes on to say here that it is on Him that God the Father has set His seal, or literally, for this one, God the Father has sealed. And the verb is sfragidzo, and it's a bit unusual here. Um, it usually what? means to certify someone or something or uh, to seal something would mean to um to uh, secure it or it would mean to um sort of an attestation of ownership you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. um some english bibles translated here that god has set his seal of approval on Jesus, and that's the NIV and, and a number of others. But I wonder if that reads too much of our modern conception mm-hmm. into the original myself. My, my question of this, you know, I partly, I, I had kind of said, wanted to point this out because as Presbyterians, we hear that word seal in our little, I know, our I little, know. Our little uh, um, alarms go off right? and our minds is, oh, seal, we like that word. So <laughs> how is it, is that indeed the same word? 
that Calvin's referencing, I would assume. Probably so. Um, I mean, this is the word group for, for I mean, the verb and the noun are, are just mean seal. Um, I don't think that they function in the New Testament the way Calvin Wait, uses Calvin it. Calvin uses it. Yeah. So keep, hold on to that as um, Alan's going to keep moving through this here. Yeah. So other translations. <clears throat> yeah, other translations uh, translate it more freely. The Common English Bible says God the Father has confirmed him as his agent to give life, which I, I think is a is an interesting take on okay. it. The message translation, Gene Peterson says, he and what he does are guaranteed by God the Father to last. I personally think that um, the word here, sfargizo, is meant to reflect the idea of anointing that's behind the language of Messiah mm-hmm. or Christ. You know, that's basically Mashiach in Hebrew means the anointed one, and Christos also in Greek is, is the anointed one. And I, I think, you know, basically Jesus is, is coming very close here to identifying himself as the Messiah, the Christ. And it's one of the few times he does. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, I do want to call to mind John 10, 36. That, that happens later. Uh, we've already seen this. But um, Jesus talks about himself as the one whom the Father has sanctified. And we see that also that language also again yeah. in John 17. Yeah. So that's similar language. And uh, so there are places in John's gospel, and this is unusual because you don't find a lot of this kind of language in the synoptic gospels, but this mm-hmm. is unusual where there are places like this where, where Jesus will use this kind of language for himself that really kind of implies, yeah, I am the one who is right, to come, right? Uh, you know, but he doesn't come right out and say it. Well, <laughs> I mean, when you think about if you come right out and say it, does that make people fall away even more easily? Right. I mean, I, I think when I think of John's gospel, you know, I am telling you this so you'll come to believe. Um, and he did many other signs and many other miracles. Mm. And I keep thinking of the the belief process isn't because someone says they tell you so. Right. Right. It's, you have to see it. it you yeah. have to. Mm-hmm. It's, you have to embody it. Right. And it's that's more than someone just telling you, right. hey. Well, and I, I've always had the the view that Jesus refrained from using the the title Messiah for himself because of the implications oh, that it would have had in the minds of his audience. They absolutely. would have gone a whole different place than he was going with it. Exactly. So, exactly. but but this is in my mind, this is language that's very close to for Jesus to describe himself as mm-hmm. the Messiah and the Christ. And perhaps the the other very close reference is that in Matthew twenty six twenty six, where Jesus is 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 having his trial before Caiaphas, you know, Caiaphas asked him, are you the Messiah, you know? Um, and Jesus says, you have said so, and from now on you will see the Son of Man. And in that context, it implies that Jesus is saying, yes, I am. So that's the, those are the, that's the only place in the synoptic tradition, in the whole synoptic tradition, where Jesus really um, is that explicit about his, his identity. Now, I think we see something of his connotation of anointing with the, with the use of the word in Paul's letters because he tells believers that they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. think that kind of reflects almost similar language of anointing. Right. Um, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, you're anointed with oil. And, and, but, but we've seen already in Isaiah 61, you're also, you know, the, 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 the servant of the Lord is anointed with the Spirit of God. Okay. 
So, yeah, we see it even early on, this kind mm-hmm. of idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Later on, um, this is taken up by one of our ref- our Protestant reformers, and, and so I, I, I want to come back to this later sure. when we hit him to see how he understands this word. Um, so, um, but I, I do would be think surprised if he didn't have a sacramental understanding of it. <laughs> well, exactly. How is, how is his look at it? So, um, hold on to that. And I think we can maybe see, I think we can maybe see a limitation of that period from mm. maybe what was actually meant. I mean, we have better, we have better tools now for analyzing right. language. Right. Um, so, okay, let's move on though through, through our scripture here. And so, um, what, how does the crowd respond to this? Well, I mean, if you if you look at it, it seems that what Jesus is saying goes straight over the heads of the crowd. I mean, because their next question doesn't even seem to follow what from what he's just told them. You know, in response to the rather bold declarations he makes about being the son of man whom God has sealed and would give them the food that abides for eternal life, they simply ask, what must we do to what perform do to the do? works of God? And I mean, that's a that's a that's a very generic question that was on the minds. We see it. We see that in in the Synoptic Gospels. Right. People ask Jesus that there, um, and you know, it's like <laughs> I don't know. And, and you know, I've, I have to say, I mean, I don't know if this is a narrative strategy on John's part or they were just really that dense. But um, you know, um, <laughs> but I'm not so sure. I'm not so dense. I read that and I'm like, oh, what do I have to do? I mean, right. <laughs> I view that very fair, but. You know, honestly, it's it. So what he just said is really hard to comprehend. I mean, you know, we've 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 mentioned the fact that on a number of occasions Jesus is pushing people past their conceptual worldview, and and he he might as well have been speaking a foreign language. Yeah, you know, exactly. It just exactly. Didn't quite, it didn't compute for them. Right. Right. Um, I mean, basically, what we're going to see is that Jesus' declaration in in John six twenty seven contains the substance of the bread of life discourse in mm-hmm, a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder if maybe John is, has the crowd ask this question to sort of back up and break down the substance of what of this really very pithy declaration that Jesus right. has made in 627. John is backing up to make it more obvious. Right. Okay, let's break it down for people so that they don't miss the point here. I, 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 think, that's, I think it definitely is a literary u- usage of it, mm-hmm. as I said, because... My gut feeling would be, huh? What? What? <laughs> right. what? what I have to do? Right. What? Because you're in a world of we have to do. I mean, we yes. still are. We, we, yes. there, what do I have to do to guarantee this? What do I have mm-hmm. to? And that's really hard to comprehend. What, what do I have to do to get you to say yes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I and again thinking about that broad purpose of John, he's, he's going to break it down for us, mm-hmm. right? right? So yeah, right. yeah. I, it's good. So they start by by asking essentially what what they can do to obey God, and Jesus' answer is straightforward enough. You know, this is the work this of God the, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. I mean, when you think of that compared to the the mindset of doing and the mindset of the law and all these things, this is this is hard to internalize. So yeah, well, this yeah, is I cool. com- I compare this. You know, you believe in the one whom He has sent. I I compare this with. You know, the son of man who will give you the food that will abide for eternal life, you know, on mm-hmm. whom God has set his seal. That's some heavy, that's some heavy stuff. That's there. heavy stuff. Yeah. It's heavy stuff. Yeah. All right. So then what do they ask next? So I, personally, I think there's a bit of irony in the follow-up question. What sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know, and again, we've seen already that that the language of sign is already something that's a, a feature 
in the feeding miracle, and it's already there mm-hmm. in in John chapter six. So it's it's. I think again, this has led. This is what's led some New Testament scholars to think there, that maybe the composition of the crowd has changed here because we're dealing with people who hadn't seen the feeding miracle. But uh, you know, um, I mean, when 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 they ask what sign you're going to give us. It does, again, make the crowd seem to be a little dense. But, again, I think that might be part of John's narrative strategy here. And, again, I think at the very least we're meant to see that those who seek signs always need another one. Well, I love that. And I think that's a really good point. You always need something else. Or did I really see what I saw? Or did Mm -hmm. I really... Hmm, I'm not going to believe that unless you do it again. Right? Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's really the substance of Jesus' refusal to perform signs is, is simply to validate his claims throughout the gospel tradition. So, again, I think, I think really the point of this is, you know, whether it's a different crowd, whether the composition of the crowd has changed a bit, or whether it's just that the crowd didn't get it, I think we're meant to see that the folks who are following Jesus, this this crowd that's thronging to him, their understanding of Jesus was superficial at best. I agree. Yep. But that that makes sense within the narrative that we learned too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. okay. So then the crowd, you know, how are they responding to this idea of G, uh, of uh, how does Jesus respond to their discussion of this the manna the yeah. that that Moses provides it? Well, I mean, he they they sort of imply that Moses is is providing one who gave them manna, but Jesus says it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread; it was my Father, you know, mm-hmm. and it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And so the, there's a shift then, you know, it, it right. wasn't Moses who gave you the true bread, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, and he's shifting gears here mm-hmm. from what they're from what they're they're pointing back to you know this great miracle of the right. exodus story right. and and he's he's saying you know let's there's something there's something else that's here right now mm-hmm. and um again i think jesus is coming back around to the point he made in in yep. in verse 27 the true bread from heaven comes, comes from, from god, god. And he elaborates, the bread of God comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, the Greek text in verse 33 is somewhat ambiguous. The phrase comes down from heaven, ha katabaino, uh-huh. mm-hmm. agrees in case, gender, and number with artos, the bread. Mm-hmm. So it's the bread, bread that comes, comes down, down from heaven. But you could translate that either that which comes down from heaven or the one who comes down from heaven. In verse 33 and the the american standard version the revised standard version the new american standard and the new revised standard all say that which comes down and um most other english translations translate the one Mm. who comes down and i think i think there's this ambiguity that's intentional because the ambiguity is whether the bread of heaven is to is a thing or is it food is it literal food or is it a person and he's going to identify himself as the bread from heaven so i think it's intentionally ambiguous on jesus interesting yeah and and i think the niv actually may do the best job here the bread of god is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world because that leaves it open you know is it is it food or is it something else and jesus is going to tell them it's something else and that's really that is really interesting because i think the assumption that it is food mm-hmm. comes there but yet it's clear that they're assuming they're thinking of food they're thinking of food jesus is thinking of something jesus else is thinking of something else yeah Interesting. Okay. So the crowd responds by saying, sir, give us this bread always, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, perhaps rather than always, we might translate pantote as from now on. 
Uh, but, you know, if you think about it, you know, if Jesus is offering them food that will last forever, you know, who wouldn't want <laughs> to have a, 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 a lifetime supply of groceries, right? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> right? So it's like winning the lottery, right? Right, right. And so it seems very clear that they're thinking of literal food, but Jesus is trying to point them in a different direction, and we'll see this beginning in verse 35. I am the bread of, of life. life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so, of course, he's not talking about satisfying physical hunger and thirst here, but rather he's, he's talking about the spiritual need mm-hmm. for life, as it's already been mentioned right. in, in this passage, or eternal, eternal life, life, as it's yeah. been mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're heading towards the end here, and yet... You've just told us at the beginning of our discussion today, we're going to be in this chapter for some time. Three more so, weeks. So three <laughs> weeks. I mean, this isn't the conclusion. In fact, no. this is just kind of the beginning. That Actually, it's kind of ironic that the, that the lectionary ends the gospel reading for this week with the opening statement yeah. of the Bread of Life discourse. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. So it kind of, I guess it kind of sets us up for what comes next. Yes, it does. Okay. It does indeed. And that's really the main point of this passage. It's going to set, the, set up the situation for Jesus to be able to say that he is the son of man who has been sealed by God and who will give them the food that he do, endures for eternal life, as he's pointed out in verse mm-hmm. 27. Or, as he's pointed out here, more succinctly, that he is the bread of life or the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And, and he's going to elaborate on that next week. Uh, and, and following that, the narrative is going to take a pretty significant turn. And as we will see, the crowd's superficial response to Jesus will not allow them to take the crucial step of faith at that point mm-hmm. that would enable them to receive this bread of life. Right. Wow. It's, it, uh, it's big stuff, really. I it mean, is. I, I, when I think about this, like, wow, we have really jumped in to really the heart and soul of who Jesus is. Well, and, and you know, it's, it's not without reason that a lot of New Testament commentators see John 3 and the being born of the Spirit and of water as an implicit reference to baptism. We're going to see mm-hmm. that John 6 has an implicit reference to the Eucharist. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, J- Jesus is really getting into the heart of who he is, and he's also getting into the heart of salvation yeah. and soteriology and what he comes to bring, right. basically. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we'll come back, and I will tell you a little bit about some of the things that came through the commentaries of the Reformers. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. We're back, friends, and we're going to let Christy take a turn uh, walking us through how the Reformers dealt with this passage. So take it away, Christy. Sure. So I kind of divided the discussions today between the three big questions. You know, why does the crowd follow Jesus? Um, What is eternal bread and how do you get it? And how can you you be assured that you are saved Uh, is ultimately the next question that Reformers ask. And then I also have a little piece on how this relates to um, the Lord's Supper, which is obviously something that comes out of it. But um, I found it kind of interesting is that they really make quite a big deal of why the crowd follows Jesus. 
And I just thought that was interesting. It would seem to me to just be just, I mean, because they saw the signs. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really the stuff, really the stuff that, that we almost jump over Mm -hmm. um, when we're reading. And yet they, but again, as they're trying to pull each piece apart, Mm -hmm. thinking each word is sacred, they want to understand each word. So one was simply um, the, and particularly from the the reformed tradition, Heinrich Bullinger and Martin Bootser, um, this whole idea that Christ is divine um, mm. and that uh, you know he's the one that 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 did the miracle of the fish and the loaves, and therefore they followed because of this divinity. So this is a little just kind of the opposite assumption of what we were talking what about we had before. <laughs> but again, when you think about reformed tradition who always want to emphasize and see the divinity of christ they they it is almost like they came to it with that reading mm-hmm. oh our eyes are open they follow because christ is divine yeah. um they never want to quite they don't even want to build that questioning there mm-hmm. um but uh then a, a, a different fellow um said look they uh it, not so much on Christ's divinity, but just on 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 Christ's uh, ability to care for them. This is a really interesting fellow. His name is Johann Wilde. He's actually Roman Catholic, but he almost has kind of a a spiritualist kind of approach. So he's mm. he's not really a main guy, but I thought it, it was such a comforting thought. It's like um, when he was there, that he cared for them, and now that he's gone, there's this there's this the sense that we have to be with him, and uh-huh. I. I, it was kind of a beautiful uh, way yeah, to look sure. at it, you know. Um, uh, Christ is missing, and, and they, they just this hunger to be after him. Huh. Um, another fellow, uh, Wolfgang Musculus, we've we've met him before. Um, followed because that's because of the boat, and this is really interesting. He really took a lot in those that whole series of the boat. There was one boat, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the true boat. That's the true church. This goes so. This is crazy. He goes, that's the true church, and then there's the other boats come in and people who follow, but they're not really the true church. <laughs> well, at least he kind of has a better uh, a better uh, estimate of, of what their what their uh, response exactly. to him is. <laughs> and there's a lot, and we'll see in some of these other questions too. This idea between you know who are the true believers and who are not the true believers mm. others thought he they followed just to get more bread <laughs> which yeah. is simple right <laughs> he gave yeah. bread once he'll give him bread again sure um which i think makes a lot of sense in this passage I, yeah. it, it actually does uh, one of the one of the things that i thought was interesting um that both Bootser and Zwingli noted is this crowd likely had a variety of people. And it, I thought that was, was fair. Um, and uh, both of them analyzed it this way. For Zwingli, um, it's a reminder that God is not only omnipotent, but active in the world and working through human beings. Um, there seems mm. to be uh, more space in Zwingli's theology for human error, that it's okay mm. that these people are kind of don't get it yet. Yeah. And the idea that even in their sinfulness and their disbelief that he can work through these people and therefore kind of, uh, kind of like God doesn't give up on them. Huh. Um, Christ doesn't give up on them. Yeah. Um, there's this whole idea of the visible church and the invisible church kind of things. And we can't discern who those people are. Yeah. Um, and, and even if their faith is imperfect, 
um, from the outside doesn't mean that they still aren't called to be part of the church. So there's, sure. and when which we, is that's I think that's really shows some very some some good depth on his part. I mean, because you know, this whole thing about what's the true church, who are the true believers, you know, mm-hmm. that was just built into the whole situation of the Reformation because you've got the, you know you got the church in Rome claiming to be the one true church, mm-hmm. and these folks are breaking off, you know, and they're mm-hmm. claiming to be restoring, you know, yeah. the true church, yeah. and you know that that's kind of prominent in everybody's minds. And this really fits with who Zwingli is. Mm. Um, you know, when when you're in Zurich. And and he's doing his reforms. And we know in Zurich there's, there's, there's these heavy-duty iconoclasts come out. The Anabaptists get very rigid, identifying them as the true believers and all those other people is not. Zwingli is much more thoughtful of the people. He's like, look, they have been nurtured, whether it's good or bad, mm-hmm. in this Roman Catholic tradition. That's how they understand their world working. We can't just start pulling apart these sacred places the way um, that— uh, uh, that the that the extremists are. We have to we have to move our reform slowly, and with compassion, mm. so that people understand that they're walking with God. He gives people a lot more. People don't always know that about Zwingli, but they give him a lot more space mm-hmm. um, of people to uh, to not understand. I mean, there's this idea of oh, once they hear the true word, they're gonna right. they're gonna d- disavow their Roman Catholicism, and he's like, no, they're not. That's right. not how people work. Right. Um, and, and frankly, it's, this is a good a good scripture to show us that you right. know, despite the signs, despite the teaching, they don't get it. Right. And I think that reflects really a lot who Zwingli is. He's like people don't get stuff that's obvious right in front of their face. Right. Um, well, that was very wise on his part as well. It as really is showing some depth. Yeah. It really is. I've always wondered, you know, had Zwingli lived longer, yeah. how, what his impact on the later Reformation would have been? To what extent would he? Would his influence, it, it kind of his compassion in this way, uh, reflected the late Reformation? Would he, would if he had been a reformer to ultimately been able to make some strides? Um, uh, the ones that we had, we know, but but yeah. later on, I don't know. It's hard to say. As well, maybe age. so. I mean, it's it's hard to beat somebody who's preaching a, a Bible sermon every day of the week. Uh, well, exactly. And <laughs> With it, Calvin, you know, and he puts together this commentary on the whole Bible. I mean, it's hard to beat somebody who does that. I don't. I you know that just boggles my right. mind. Right. Well, of course, Bingley was the first one to um, to just pull across, pull apart the lectionary. We're not doing that. We're going to go verse by verse in the Bible. Mm-hmm. He was really anxious to, to try to reach the wholeness of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- I think that's an interesting space as well. Sure. For him. Sure. So we can move on now to this next big question of what is um, eternal bread and how do you get it? So I think that was all the confusion between um what was what what's meant here what's meant by this bread is this is it physical the physical bread that you eat right. or is it something else <laughs> and um they have there's a whole spectrum of things um this idea that um that this eternal bread feeds the, the soul and that, that this is a spiritual situation mm-hmm. okay and that's that's really comes from the reform tradition but the Roman Catholics are saying this is much more physical, and they turn this then into, into works <laughs> versus faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and Calvin um, claims, look, this bread is is not gained by by labor. 
it, this is purely a spiritual experience, which is, of course, what we would expect. Um, that this eternal bread is um, is nothing. There's nothing you do to get it. Um, I would imagine he would think he would say something like, "Only God can give it. It can only come from God's e- grace." Exactly. Yeah. Only come from God's grace. Yeah, it's very, very Calvin. Um, so these two pieces come to are, are side to side. Um, for the Roman Catholics, th- there's this sense of though this physical. There's a much more emphasis on this physical bread, mm-hmm. um, and that that it has some kind of symbolic. F- purpose in in the actual physicality of it so this eternal bread it is eternal of the spirit but it, it has a physical presence so this well, is and where that we, fits in with roman catholic sacramental theology, exactly and that's right? where it gets into yeah. the sacramental yeah. theology yeah. and and that indeed you have to the visible church has to be you have to show and do these things to show that you can can get that bread so that means um that means it is of your power whereas in the reform tradition in particular, but, but the, all of the reformers are saying, this isn't about you. It's about faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a whole spectrum then of, of, of how that, how that sits out from, from Zwingli who's saying, look, we, we can't tell it all to Calvin. It says, no, you're really gonna, you're really gonna be able to still be able to see the people that are acting out of faith because their works are going to reflect their actions. So we get that whole debate that goes on throughout the Reformation. Well, and you know, I mean, I'm definitely Reformed in my in my theology. Um, I, I think there's some brilliance to the way the Catholic Church approaches their, their whole view of soteriology, their whole sacramental thing, because it really breaks it down and makes it very tangible. Everything you do is very tangible. I mean, they mm-hmm. even have they even have the works of corporal mercy. They have the works of mm-hmm. spiritual mercy, and and it's just you know it's, it's like, easy. Well, I don't know that it's easy. Now that but might it, be but the wrong word, but it's easy it's, to understand. It's it's um it's it's more concrete. It's it, it takes go. this, and I would say, I mean, I would say, you know, if we if we had. Uh, you know, uh, some highfalutin Catholic theologian with us here, he would probably insist, yeah, there's a spirituality to this, um, but the practicality is what helps people who don't really have the depth of understanding to be able to stay stay on the path, so to speak. Right. But if you don't have the depth of understanding, does indeed that somehow reflect a genuine right. pure faith? Exactly. Calvin Calvin says this, and I thought this was interesting. It's a quote from Calvin. Christ does not separate faith from its works. We need not wonder if he makes it to be the first and the last. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that if you have faith, you are indeed going to be showing that you're doing the works. In practicality, the works are going to look really similar, but it's right. it's what's the origin of them? It's right. the origin to to reach eternal life by your own you. effort, right? Yeah, yeah, by your own effort, or, or is, is it, working within you? Yeah. Is it a gift of God? Now yeah. I know you're all thinking, is faith itself a work? I'm not going to go into that, but they do bring <laughs> that up, and I think that's always one of the ba- great theological questions, mm-hmm. and and really, um, um, Calvin addresses this, and and Heinrich Bullinger. Um, so our, our um, Swiss theologians are going to are going to be asking this question, um, and Calvin Calvin addresses. Look, it's 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 not really it's something you it's it's a presence. It's something you live mm. into. It's 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 just something that you that is there to step into. So mm-hmm. anyway, an interesting question. It, even hard to define. I mean, I right. feel like I'm talking in in unspecific terms, because I think it's hard for us to understand. Well, it is. I mean, you know, um, 
there there is both this sense that faith is not something you can work up on your own. It's a gift from God, and it is something very spiritual that you live into. But then at the same time, if you're going to live into it, it's going to manifest itself in the way you live your life. Right. So right. It, there is that there is that challenge. And I think, you know, in the Roman Catholic world, they kind of start with a more, I guess, if you would call it elementary approach, you know, of, well, we're going to we're going to take people through the steps and mm-hmm. we're going to assume that they're going to wind up in faith. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in the reform tradition, it's no, 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 no. You got to start with faith. You got to start with grace. Right. And we're going to we're going to hope and pray that that faith and grace is going to lead people into the life. Right. And I think if you look at both contexts, practically speaking, I mean, I've known some Catholic lay people who they they get it. Yeah, I mean, they, they get do. it. Yeah. And and we've got some folks in our churches that, you know, they just don't. Right. And right. so, right. so, I mean, you know, I, it's, and I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to jump ship and, 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 right. and embrace the Catholic theology of soteriology, but I get, I get the pragmatic aspect of it, you know, that it, how it, how they're coming at it. Right. Right. I, I, I think that there's some of that. And of course, I think we do some of the practical stuff in our we own do. churches as we well, as you well. know, as we, as we, say, look, these are your spiritual disciplines that you should be mm-hmm. practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, as is, you know, w- you should be saying a prayer every night before you go to bed. Hey, you know, you should be tithing. You should be tithing or giving some money to the church. You well, should be- and confirmation, you know, confirmation is something that would be anathema in the Baptist world where, where I worked, you know, in the Southern Baptist world where I worked. Uh, that would just be anathema. You know, you, conversion is something that happens spontaneously. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, finally, um, one of the pieces is how, how can you be assured if you're saved? That was one of the big really? questions huh. that, that they were having. I guess, how can you know that you have this right. bread of eternal life? Huh? Well, I mean, this was a big, this was a big, wor- a, a big worry, you know, especially as if, if indeed that you, you know, are, and, and as we get into like ideas of, of, of the elect, you know, how do you know you're part of the elect? You know, this is one of the mm-hmm. big re- reformed questions. And um, this is really we read in here of you don't need to worry about. So these people, how do we get there? How do, we just have to have faith. Well, how do I know? Is that enough? Do I have to have more? What, mm-hmm. What's the sign of that? Saying, look, you don't have to worry about that, that you are here asking this question, that you are here um, trying to, trying to figure out that this can be your assurance. And right. so I think, um, if you're asking the question at all, then, then you, you can be pretty, you can be yeah, assured that yeah. you're in the right space. <laughs> yeah. You should have peace of mind that you are saved. This is not true by the way, though, once you get into some of your, of your radical groups mm-hmm. who are saying you can tell if you, you're saved. And, and of course this, and, and even the Puritans to leaving to some, we can see, Oh, if you have this, the mark of the devil on you, you're not saved. You're actually damned. And, so there's, you can actually look at people and mm, yeah. and what they look like will tell you. And so you get into this very... <laughs> that's, um, that's bizarre. I've always found that bizarre. Well, yeah. So, you know, if gosh, if you're not wearing the right clothing, if you're not wearing, if, if you're not doing the right rituals... If you have right a wrong, rituals, the wrong look on your face, you know, the wrong look in your eyes, you know, people, people, you know, it's like they could, they could mm-hmm. pronounce you to be influenced by the devil or something. You know? it, it, yeah, <laughs> it, exactly, exactly. So it's that inch slippery slope you go mm. down between um, what the human perception of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And yet, 
how many of us in churches are guilty of being just in that space of saying, well, that person doesn't look like they should right. be here. Right. They don't look like someone who is is properly dressed for Sunday morning church, and therefore, hmm, there's something wrong. They must. It, 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 you can see how that's and sure. it's both. It, it and it's both. You see that in both both the Roman Catholic tradition and in this one. I mean, oh, there's sure. a sense yeah. of of what it, what what encapsulates being part of the, the true church. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but the reformers basically said, look, if you're even asking the question, you yeah, can trust yeah, in God's goodness and in you it. can have peace of mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a couple other things. One of the things um, that I wanted to pull up was um, uh, one of our reformers, Casper Kreuzinger, he was a, a Lutheran uh, reformer, um, did a lot of, uh, of interaction with, um, with Luther and was one of kind of his early right-hand men. Mm. Um, and his wife actually is really awesome and did a hymn book. <laughs> so we like her. Or, cool. or didn't a hymn book. She, she, wrote, she, wrote, she wrote some hymns that the Luther actually identified her and identified her name. Nice. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, didn't cover it up. So it, the story of her hymn is really interesting because it's in the very first hymn book that came out, the Achleter book in 1523. And um, they recognized her name in there, Elizabeth Kreitzinger. What's interesting is in the hymn books about 50 years later, they get rid of her name. Wow. Yeah. And they start to attribute it to men. Mm. So here's Martin Luther that's recognizing she's been called as somebody that is capable and worthy of writing hymns. Mm. And then later on, they wow. cross her out only to then be kind of reinstated later. So I've always had an interest in Casper Kreutzinger and frankly, his wife, sure, um, who are very, very much called to, to being leaders in the church. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, Casper, Casper <laughs> is the one that really gets into um, this word's um, uh, sphragis, if I said it right, yeah, yep. um, which is that w- one that Alan brought up earlier, which is um, well, that's the noun form of the verb sfragizo. Yeah. Yes, fragizo, which is we've been reading a seal, mm-hmm. and of course, this is the one I said, "Hey, uh, <laughs> open your eyes to this word seal because this is such a, a beloved word in our in our reform tradition." But he kind of goes in an interesting um, direction, and I, I um, we can have Alan pop in on this a little bit more, but he he says, "Look." He called the same seal an anointing, a gift bestowed specifically from God the Father to Jesus Christ. But um, mm. this is not how. Um, um, quite, but this is not how Christ sees it in the Trinity. It is sending the fullness of God. The world seal is related uh, yeah. to the image of God. So, in other words, he, he thinks this is a relationship that should be just a word just used between God and the mm-hmm. Son, but mm-hmm. not one that should be used of the Holy Spirit converting the seal on us. And yet Paul uses it that way. And yet Paul <laughs> uses it that way, and, and he says, yeah. and frankly, so does John use it that way. So you've got this interesting space. He's kind of like limiting the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and So um, it's, a, it's, it's like... Um, Jesus bears the image of God, and that is the seal of God upon yes. him. And then yes. we should see that word seal, sfragis, sfragizo, as mm-hmm. being something that is uniquely related to this inter- yes. in this interaction yeah. between God and Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So I, I didn't quite know what to do with it, but I think it's an interesting, it's kind of an interesting interpretation. And I wondered hmm. to what extent that's a limitation of the, of the Greek, or did, did he... 
Well, I mean, it's very clear. Paul uses the words fragizo right. to refer to the Spirit's work in our life and the Spirit as as the one who sort of gives us assurance and, and seals us uh, for eternal life. Yeah, yeah, which por- brings us into the... And kind of into to the body, if you right, will. Right. And and Casper's critical of, of Paul for doing mm. that and critical of John for doing this too, mm. by the way. Mm. I mean, he says this is really shouldn't be this. And I That's interesting. Yeah. Um you know, um, I haven't seen that language used with relation to the Trinity, to be honest with you. Um, I've seen mm-hmm. it used more with relation to sacramental theology. Okay. And, you know, basically what happens is by the second century, uh, church fathers begin to use the word, the word groups fragis and sfragizo for um, baptism especially. Um, and they pick up on, you know, Paul uses the word sfragis in Romans where he says that that circumcision was the seal mm-hmm. of Abraham's faith that he already had. And um, and they pick up on that as, you know, circumcision was a seal. And so then they take this, they take that as justification for using this sacramental view of baptism in, our, in a Christian context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that's reading too much into what sfragizo means in John 6, 27. Mm-hmm. I think in John 6, 27, it's simply referring to the fact that you know, as as I mentioned earlier, that you know, God, Jesus says God had sanctified and sent him here. God has sealed him. Right. I, I personally see this as the language of as, as sort of an, I guess maybe a um, a not so um, obvious way to say that he was the one anointed yeah. by God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that fits better. And and so I mean, it, but it, I mean, it does relate to the fact that mm-hmm. Jesus has this unique relationship right. with right. God. Yeah. But yeah. I don't see that as being the sole meaning of sfragizo by okay. any means in yeah. the New Testament. Okay. Fair enough. Mm. Uh, if nothing else from that, you kind of get a little bit of some of the Greek work that they are working with in mm-hmm. in. Uh, and their their real attempts to get at the the core of what these words mean, um, and 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 that it may mean something different. Th- well, and I think it. I mean, I think he was he was on the right track in that in that this relates in in this passage it relates to something that's going on between God and Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm 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 a, I guess I would say, I wouldn't limit the meaning of that word to to that. You know, obviously right. here it refers to something unique, but that doesn't mean that Paul can't use it for something else, right. you know, where the Holy Spirit is is um, poured out on believers as a seal as well. Cool. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Okay. Hi, everybody. We are back. Uh, as we got thinking about this in between, we got thinking, what is the most significant part of this portion? Remember, we're, we're, we're going to be talking about this for several weeks. So today, what was the emphasis? And we think it's really the crowd, this disbelieving crowd, and yet they follow Jesus. I mean, they, they, they go at length to find him. So I want to start our discussion with the crowd. Yeah, and you know... I, th- I think that really kind of is the focus of, of this passage. Um, you know, you have these throngs of people. You haven't, you know, you have the big crowd, the huge crowd that Jesus feeds in this unnamed place on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. 
you have the implication in this passage that there are even more people who are, are you know, maybe they've heard about this or I don't know. There are even more people who've come from Tiberias right. who, who are joining this crowd that, that was seeking him and that was part of the feeding miracle initially. And so, I mean, this, and this is a picture we see from the Synoptic Gospels as well. You know, the more Jesus goes, the more Jesus does these kinds of amazing things, the more he is just thronged right. by crowds of people right. who come to him. And they go, the big question is, why are they coming to him? Why are they coming? What are they looking for? Well, and you know, when you, I, this probably is a whole rabbit trail, but I was thinking, you know, Tiberius, this is a Roman, this is a Roman installation. So this... These could be Gentiles, too. They're even coming on that boat. Could be. Um, but again, people are coming. There's this mm-hmm. hunger. There's this hunger by them to come. And while we look at them like they're stupid, yeah, that's um, that's a really that's a really interesting thing. And, and, and John spends some time to tell us about them and that they're coming. Mm-hmm. We, we, not just aside, not just, oh, they didn't understand, so I had to explain more. Jesus had to explain more. Uh, that um, they're coming and they're hungry to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. I, and I think I think we're in a different space with John's gospel than we were with Mark's gospel because when we looked at at, at Mark's yeah. account of the feeding of the five thousand, we saw that really this this was an expression of Jesus' compassion for the crowd. Even though he had planned this as a retreat for himself and the disciples, you know, when he gets to the other side of the sea, there they are, mm-hmm. and and he has compassion for them. He teaches them. He feeds them. I don't see that so much going on here as much as, you know, Jesus seems to, in John's gospel, Jesus seems to be aware of a destiny that he is moving toward mm-hmm. from the very beginning of the gospel. Right, right. And, and so it's, it's almost as if each of these events is something that has to happen to contribute toward, you know, the final uh, end result of him being lifted up, which means crucified, but also exalted back mm-hmm. to um, his rightful place mm-hmm. at God's right hand. And, and so um, th- there is almost more of a programmatic emphasis of it here mm-hmm. in, 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 in the context of John's narrative, I think. And so it's not, there's not so much that emphasis on Jesus' compassion for the crowd in, in John, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, and there's really kind of, I mean, Jesus' interaction with them throughout, and we've already seen to some extent, Jesus' interaction with them, he's pushing them. Yes. And it's going to get even edgier yeah, as we get into does. the Bread it of Life discourse. Even, it gets even edgier. And I, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder as John is presenting this, I wonder if it reflects something about the disbelief of 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 maybe some of the people that that are in his audience, right? Mm-hmm. This sense of questioning. I could, and I don't think it's unlike. And I'm maybe jumping ahead, but I don't think it's unlike a lot of the people that that come into our sanctuaries. Yeah. You know, as I think about people coming in and people, they're they're kind of compelled to be there, and yet they're so full of disbelief, and they they're not even sure why they're they're not to even be there. sure <laughs> why they're compelled to be there. Yeah. But when they hear. Um, and and they and they feel and they experience they they're hungry to know more. Right. Um, they know they're hungry. They're not sure what they're hungry for. They know it when they hear it, mm-hmm. and they know it when they don't. Exactly. Hear it. Exa- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that's what we get here. And yeah. I think I think some of us though come with the response of, why don't they get it? 
Yeah. Well, and, and part of what we have to understand with this particular crowd is that at the end result of all of this, at the end of John chapter six, is that, um, you know, um, the, the things that he said to them, uh, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him in verse 66. Mm-hmm. And Jesus turns to the 12, do you also wish to go away? And Simon actually makes a pretty pretty astute confession of faith, which is very different space from where we were right. in Mark's gospel, right? right? right. The, 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 the disciples, were their hearts were hardened and they didn't understand about right. the loaves. And, right. and in John's gospel, the, the 12 were the only ones who get it and many of his other disciples stopped following him. Right, which is an interesting space because they're compelled to know, they come in, they're hungry to understand, then they understand, but maybe, maybe the cost is too great. Maybe it's... It could it's be. Too, I mean, or maybe it's just too easy not to follow. Well, I think part of it is that the language Jesus uses to describe himself and 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 to describe eternal life and salvation is really offensive to Jewish ears. Well, that's true. I mean, he says yeah. you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah, you know, that's and true. and even even to this day, you know, that would be something that would be really hard really, to just really go, stand up and say, you know, if you're if you're celebrating communion, you know, you have to eat Jesus' flesh and drink His blood in order to right. <laughs> in order to, right. to to have eternal life. Right. You know that that would be that would be uh, problematic today too. Right. So uh, part and and so I get the I get the impression I'm anticipating a little bit here, but I get the impression that Jesus was kind of intentionally provoking this sort of crisis on the part of the crowd because he again as we said earlier it seems that they're following him their response of following him they're seeking after him isn't out of any real there's no real depth of faith there there's no real depth of of understanding there it's really more of wow this guy's healing people wow this guy fed it fed a lot of people you know and and he's promising more food even though they they misunderstand that and it's like, you know, um, we're, we're meant to see this as a kind of superficial response to Jesus. And it's almost as if Jesus is provoking them to turn back. But I think there's this, this, this sense, too, of people are already <laughs> willing to go when it feels good. But when it really push comes to shove, they're really they're really not when they really have to when they really have to to, to give themselves um, to their faith, they're not so willing to do it. Right. You know, when they realize that there's sacrifice involved, when we realize that there's pain involved, and we realize that it's hard. Well, I, there's, I a there's, there's a commitment. There's a commitment involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, so I, it's I, not just about I, coming I, yeah, to church and feeling good. <laughs> I, yeah, which is part of what we've just been talking about. That is, yeah. uh, we are so about getting the seekers, which is great, but then what happens after that? Right, and um. Uh, do we just keep the the seeker service going the whole time? I mean, we 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 were just talking about this that, that seeker service goes on. You go, the music's good, the sermon's okay, it t- says things. I feel good. I join. I get involved, um, and then people are not really aware of even what theology is coming down on, and they just keep going mm-hmm. because it feels good to be in that space. Mm-hmm. And then I wonder, but when that theology starts to impact who you are. And ultimately, how you respond to the world is that is that is that the theology of well, and when they start when they start pointing the finger at you and saying you you are living in sin for some for for whatever reason, you know, yeah. 
that 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 then it becomes problematic then and it's it, like mm-hmm. i think at that point it's like you've already been sucked it's it's like an almost an abusive relationship yeah, you know oh, totally. someone manipulates a a, a a partner into into a relationship and and yeah. you know makes it makes them themselves out to be somebody they're not and then then by the time you're committed you know in you're in the relationship and you find out you know you haven't gotten yeah. um dr jekyll you've gotten mr hyde yeah. and and it's in you know, but yet you're already in there and it's like, what do I do now? And, um, you know, this happens all the time in relationships. And yeah, I think it happens yeah. a lot in those church settings, you know, too. because because folks have already made friendships. They've right. already gotten a support group right, built up right. in that kind of a context. What are they going to do? Just walk away from all of that? Right, right. And so this whole depth of who Christ is and mm-hmm. being and in Christ and in this 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 imagery of eating my flesh and, and drinking my this is look are you really ready mm-hmm. to lay it all out for for Christ and who who that love that depth of love that is that is in Christ and most people are not right but this is where I think this is where I think you know it's it I think most churches you know they believe we have to get young families in order for our church to thrive well okay that's right but you have to do more than just get them to come to right. church. You have to also find a way and a, and a space and, a, and a, the appropriate way to truly educate them with, with solid Christian education. And mm-hmm. that's something that's missing in a lot of our churches, yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah, I There's agree. a very few people who are, very few adults who are involved in Christian education in our churches. Uh, no, that's very true. That's, that's very true. So um, I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like we have any answers today except i think i think looking at the crowd might be a, a way to preach this to get people mm-hmm. to think of what what compels you to follow jesus right and um and then what uh what is the commitment then that that is right what and saying. what what keeps you following what jesus keeps you following when jesus? when when uh, when the feel good maybe isn't there yeah. or when the when when maybe yeah, uh, maybe you, you have to step up and you have to sacrifice your time and you have to, you know, you have right. to commit to being on a session or, or on, right. on a board or on a committee or something right. or, or to, to actually offering time to the church or right. or to to serving Christ. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks. thanks we'll see Christy. you next week. Yep. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.